Right on. Yep. All right. Good evening, everybody. Glad to see you tonight. It is Christmas Adam Festivus for those of you who partake. Uh, we have two days before the holiday. Normally, it is it is customary here at North Heights. The Wednesday night before is just a singing night, usually because there's so many people out of town, as it looks like we have quite a few out this evening, and also because the teacher doesn't want to teach so close to Christmas. Well, that's not me. And not only do I just want to teach, but also there is just so much material that I simply cannot afford to take a week off. So if you are expecting to come here tonight and hear Joy to the World and Hark the Herald Angels Sing and any other kind of songs, I'm sorry, you can sing them on your car ride home. I'm sure you have them playing on your uh, radio since Halloween, or am I the only one who's been doing it since Halloween? But tonight we are going to study. So open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 9, and let's begin in verse number 19. Revelation 9, starting in verse 19, that's where we left last week. And I'll tell you, just to catch you up, we're, what we're looking at, this is the very end of the chapter, and we're going to go through this, finish it, and then look at the very quick chapter 10, and then be done for the night. We won't stay here the whole hour. Um, but what we've been looking at in chapter 9 basically are descriptions of two different armies, one of whom is generaled by Satan and one of whom is generaled by God. One is tasked with attacking Rome, the other one is tasked with attacking a group we haven't yet mentioned, but we're going to see as we go through the end of this chapter. And they're both described in very distinct and vivid, apocalyptic um, uh, you know, almost fever dream kind of nightmare fuel ways. One is an army of locusts, but they're not just locusts. They, they have all kinds of additional descriptors applied to them, not the least of which is battle armor. So you can visualize that however you want. But then there's this other army that we're now in the middle of looking at, starting in verse 19, or started a couple of verses before, but we're in 19. This army that the, the base of it to build on top of is a horse but it's not just a horse, it's a horse with battle armor, but it's a horse with battle armor and the head of a lion, and we keep reading what it says about them. And it, we just got through in the previous verse how this horse-lion creature spits fire and brimstone, okay? Revelation nine nineteen, for their power, their being this army, described like horse-lion-y creatures, is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and, and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Now, again, that's the King James, so your translation might vary a little bit, but you, you might have a translation, or you might be trying to interpret that or visualize it in your mind, and you might get this idea of, of a horse-like creature with a snake-like tail. But that's not exactly what John describes it like. John says their tails were like unto serpents and had heads. So if you're going to visualize this, visualize a horse-like creature whose tail is not just a bushy, you know, clump of hair, but instead is an actual serpent with a biting head at the end of its tail. So in other words, it's going to get you coming or going. It's going to get you either this away, as it's coming to you, breathing out fire and brimstone, and if that doesn't get you, when it passes you, it's going to bite you with its snaky tail. So... I mean, it is, it is, I think, intentionally over the top, if there can be a top to go over when you're dealing with apocalyptic language. It's intentionally over the top. It's supposed to conjure up your worst kind of nightmare, your worst kind of feel, and that's the way it's described here. They had these tails like serpents that had heads, and the great understatement at the end of the verse, with them they do hurt. I imagine so. But whom are they hurting? Verse 20, and the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, that's verses preceding this, yet repented not of the works of their hands, 
that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, dot, dot, dot. There's more to finish the thought, but just to introduce what John is saying here. You have a very particular target to this army, and it's described for you here in the beginning of verse 20 as the rest of the men. Now keep that in mind as we go through the next couple of verses. But notice the description. Who are these men? Well, they're the ones which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, repented not of the evil deeds that they had done. So these are people who have done evil, have not repented of the evil, but are not being targeted by the things previous. So the people who are being attacked by these scary snake-tailed horse creatures are not the same people who were attacked by the crazy psycho locust creatures. Okay, that's a different kind of people. The people being attacked by the locust monsters are the people who are the described for us as the third part of the world. Now, I've used that term, and John has used that term, we've talked about that term a little bit, going all the way back to chapter 6, the third part, the third part, the third part. And there was someone who asked somewhere in this vicinity, uh, what is the third part? And I said, I'll tell you in chapter 9. Well, welcome to chapter 9. If you could divide the world into four parts, Rome is going to occupy three of those parts in the book of Revelation. Rome is the third part of the world. Now, our, our mathematical brain, here's the third part. Probably, if you're like me, you immediately say, well, this is the third part. It's a third of the four, one-third. But that's not the way it's used here, as we'll see very specifically in just a minute, but hinted at here in this one verse. It is three parts of four is describing the Roman Empire, leaving one empty part. To these are attacked by locust monsters versus locust monsters, previously in this chapter. But there is this fourth part, this last part, the rest of the people who are going to be attacked are going to be attacked by a different fighting force. These people are going to be attacked by, we'll call them horsey, snaky people. That's who these people are going to be attacked by. Well, who are these people? Well, there are people who sinned, that's implied by the fact they have not repented, in verse 20, of the works of their hands. And what specifically are we talking about? Well, they are idolaters. They worship devils and idols of gold, silver, brass, and stone, and wood. Idols which cannot see or talk. This just, I mean, this is almost a quotation from Isaiah and some Old Testament prophets who repeatedly warned the people about idolatry and constantly talked about the futility of worshiping an idol that cannot hear your prayers and cannot answer your prayers, has no hands, has no feet to move unless you carry it. That's the exact kind of imagery that John just lifts and inserts right here in this text as he talks about these idols. So he's saying you have these people who have been worshiping these idols, but they're not Rome, who we've already been identified as fighting these other forces and losing. So who are they? Let's take our minds back to the beginning of this book, chapters 2 and 3, and these letters written to these various churches, almost all of which, not all, but almost all of which, dealt with the specific sins they were dealing with, many of which involved a yielding over to idolatry and witchcraft and evil. So this, I think, is a reference to those people who have sinned and, as the verse says, not repented of the things that they have done. So we're not dealing with people in this part who are attacking the church. That's these other three parts. The Roman Empire is attacking the church. We're dealing with people, some of whom may belong to the church, or maybe just are outside of the church but aren't directly attacking God's people. A mixture of the two, if you will. Either way, if they want to make a defense, they could say, well, we're not attacking your church. We're not hurting you. We're not hurting them. No, but you're spitting in God's face when you commit idolatry and when you blaspheme. 
and when you worship idols of stone and gold and silver and wood. And so that's these people. As God is doling on His punishment either to Rome, loosening the slack of the devil's chain, that was the previous part of the chapter, or here, His own army, personally attacking. He's attacking all kinds of people. He's attacking the whole of humanity with one exception, the people who belong to Him. So there's those people. Keep reading though. Look at verse 21. Still describing those people. They neither repented of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their fornication, nor their thefts. This is just out and out complete um, uh, debauched and worldly lifestyle. They commit murder. We know what that is. They commit sorcery. That's, uh, you know, in our 21st century we think of Harry Potter wizardry, but this is more like the love of the occult and the worship of dead spirits and things like that. Um, all kinds of false religions built around that, those concepts, especially back then. Fornication, we know what that is. And then he says thefts, just the, the general taking of what is not yours, we understand the definition, but it seems like such a, a mundane sin when paired up against murder and sorcery and fornication, you just have theft there. Well, I could make some kind of an application, I could find some way to tie it in, I'm not going to, because it's still just as bad. We put labels on sins. This is a bigger sin and a lesser sin. We put degrees on sins. God looks at it all as worthy of being attacked by scary horse monsters with snake tails. And that's the end of the chapter. As he's describing these kinds of people who are being attacked, he says everybody essentially is going to be attacked by one army or another, for one sin or another, with one glorious exception, and those are his people. Now go to chapter 10. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a white... Hold on. We'll be right back. All right, I need to work with. All right, another angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet were pillars, or excuse me, were as, or like, similar to, described as, pillars of fire. We have to this point now, we're in chapter 10, up to chapter 9, we have described six of the seven angels that were just introduced to us, each of whom had seven trumpets given to them. Remember that last week? Everything was really quiet in heaven, and then distributed were these seven trumpets. And these seven trumpets were blown one by one by one by one. And with each trumpet blast is a word of woe and of doom to God's enemies. Whether that's Rome in particular, or just people who blaspheme and commit idolatry, etc. God's enemies suffer the shame and the woe that comes with the blaring of this trumpet. Well, these trumpets have now blasted. Six have, have sounded their horns, and there is a seventh one still to come. But you won't hear the seventh one until chapter 11, the next chapter. There's a gap in the middle where some stuff has to happen. This is not the first time that's come up in this book. As you've gone through previously, if you remember, when there were the uh, seven angels that, that opened seven seals, or God opened seven seals and seven angels did their thing, um, between the sixth and the seventh seal being broken was a big, long kind of sidebar. Well, here you have the same thing happening here. When you, I, I'm not going to, but I could kind of fan out Revelation and show you visually how it's very outline-oriented and it's very easy to identify patterns in it. it. really ties in well with the apocalyptic nature of it. But anyway, here's this description of this angel. Again, it's described in verse 1. A mighty angel, but he's called another mighty angel. There's two words in the Greek for another. There's alos and there's heteros. Heteros is another of a different kind, and alos is another of the same kind. This is another of the same kind. This is an alos angel, another of the same kind. 
Now, y'all don't make fun of me because I'm just working fast here, okay? It's going to look like the Pillsbury Doughboy or something like that. But All right. He looks like he's posing, but that's all right. So here is, this, here is our base for this human-like creature. All right, this angel he's described as. But we're not going to give him wings. We're not going to give him a halo. We're going to give him the description that's applied to him in the text. First of all, he is clothed with a cloud. How do you visualize a cloud? Well, I don't know. We're just going to give him some swirlies. You know, it's just... He just has this, this misty aura about him, okay? Something ethereal, something not physical, grounded, and yet we're going to see him literally grounded in a second. But he's clothed in the cloud, and he has, let's whip out a color here, a rainbow about his head. Now, I don't know if that's like a halo of a rainbow up here, or the way I, I think of it in my head is just this kind of a rim, rainbow, multicolored aura around his head. But that's the description, the description of him. And then his face, you don't see his eyes, you don't see his nose, you don't see his mouth, you just see, well, if you saw him, it would be like looking at the sun. You just see this bright radiance. Now, a lot of people, when they read this description, their first thought is, oh, this is Jesus. Because Jesus is big. He's clothed with clouds. There's no verse that says that, but it sounds like it would be a Jesus kind of thing. You've got this halo of rainbow and he's bright and shining oh and his feet let's not forget his feet his feet are on fire or they were shining as though they were on fire if you recall when jesus is first described to us uh in the apocalyptic kind of way at the beginning of this book he's described as feet of fine brass glowing radiant maybe that's people start drawing these connections but i don't think that's a fair connection to draw i don't think we're talking about jesus for one very giant reason actually two one of which is he's called an angel. He's called another angel. There's only one Jesus. And yeah, you could say, well, angel just means messenger. So this could be Jesus as a messenger, angelic-like being. In apocalyptic literature, there is never once Jesus described as an angel. We, are, we don't have anywhere, Old Testament or New Testament, that, that Rosetta Stone verse that unlocks that idea. That, okay, well, there is an example. We have a precedent of a verse that makes, makes Jesus or God an angel. That's not anywhere in apocalyptic language. So it's very dangerous to put it here when you don't have a reason to. When the more obvious explanation, Occam's razor, is this is what it's called, an angel. The other explanation I'll give you in just a second. But here, here's this being. All right, Where he's standing, we'll get to. But that's what he looks like. <clears throat> Oh, I forgot. Cloud. I was giving you um, the radiant light shining, feet, um, purification, fire, and revelation. Rainbow. We've talked about rainbows before. When we first saw the throne of God, it was surrounded by a rainbow in chapter 4. What is the rainbow in a biblical context? Promise keeping and God's assurances. Yeah. So here is, and it's, it's going to come into play in a little bit, here is a symbol of God's promise keeping. When God makes an oath, God keeps His Word. We'll get to that in a second. And then the radiance we know. Uh, divine majesty. But not inherent in this being. Radiated by this being. Very similar to the four angel beasts from chapter 4. Who demonstrated something about Jesus. The cloud though. In apocalyptic language. A rainbow symbolizes promise. But you know we can often and we often do put rainbows and clouds together. Don't we? Because when we see storms. Clouds tend to part and then a rainbow breaks uh, after the storm. So I, I, I see the connection between a cloud and a rainbow. 
Clouds in apocalyptic language often symbolize uh, ominous warnings. Dark clouds approaching. You know, you see a cloud and you think bad omen. But this is not just a bad picture. This is not just a guy wreathed in bad omens because above it all is a godly promise-keeping symbol. So put those two, and they don't cancel each other out. They complement each other. You have depicted before you the divine keeping of promise, whether that is punishment for the wicked, the dark ominous cloud, or protection for the righteous, the, the glory of the rainbow. That's what I see when I see this. In, in the particulars, but let's, let's zoom out a little bit and see what this angelic being is actually doing here. Look at verse 2. He has in his hand, the King James says, a little book that is opened. Does your Bible say little book? Or does your Bible say a little scroll? What does your Bible say? Book? Book? Anybody have a different word? Alright. There are no books back then. They didn't have printing presses. They didn't staple bind things and things like that. They had scrolls. And that would have been the more accurate translation. A little scroll. But when you hear little scroll, or even little book, probably what your first thought is, not very long to read. Short. Not much to say. Well, there in fact is a lot to say in this little scroll. Spoiler alert, it's the entire rest of the book of Revelation is contained in this little scroll. The, the smallness of the object in question does not relate to how little it has to say, but how little time there is left before everything written in it comes to pass. And we'll see that as we go through it. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. He had in his hand this little book. And then look at the rest of the verse too. He set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the dry ground. So here's... I need three hands. Ah, the sea. Okay? And the next one we're going to mark with green. Dry ground. I don't know why he bother. It's so dark and so... You're so far away, you can't even tell. But now he's standing on the sea with one foot and with dry ground with the other foot. What does that symbolize? First of all, it gives you a sense of scale, if nothing else. Someone who's so large, she can put one foot on Italy and the other foot in the Atlantic Ocean, right? That's a humongous creature. But it also, I think, represents the, the scope and the totality of what he represents or what this angel is going to take part in. It's something that is global, something that is universal, something that's going to touch the whole world, land and sea, with his head in the clouds to go along with that. Verse 3. And this angel cries with a loud voice, and it sounds when he does like a lion that roars. And when he had cried... How many thunders? Seven thunders. The number of totality. So don't, don't think what John heard was rumble. Rumble number two, rumble number three, all the way to rumble number seven. No, he's, he's using apocalyptic number usage to give you thunder that completely surrounded. Thunder that was everywhere. He spoke with a voice that was so booming it shook the sky. He spoke with a loud voice. It sounded like a lion roaring. Someone with authority. Someone with power. And it shook the sky. Described here, seven thunders uttering its seven sounds. King James says voices, but the word is actually sounds. This is Old Testament imagery. Come to life. One more time, John uses it a lot. In the book of Jeremiah, uh, God's voice is described as speaking like a roar from on high. Jeremiah 25.30 Hosea says the Lord will roar and when he does, his people will tremble. Hosea 11, 
verse 10. Joel says, when the Lord roars, the earth shakes. Joel 3, verse 16. And Amos says, the Lord's heavenly proclamations are like the roaring of a lion. Amos 3, verse 8. Now you hear all that and you think, so is this God then? Because you're saying, Old Testament references is God, 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 God. Roar, 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 roar. This guy, it must be God then. But no. If this is what the text says it is, an angel, it's a messenger allowed to speak with the same kind of magnificence, with the same kind of booming. It's like God gave him his megaphone. Here's my natural megaphone. You have it so that you can project that same sound. But we know this is not divine because of the next verse. Verse number 4. When the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven say to me, Hold up. That's the paraphrase. We'll get there in a second. The point is, he hears a voice from heaven. If he hears a voice from heaven, tell him not to do something. Who's the voice from heaven? That would be God. And if he's hearing the voice of God, and it's not coming from this fellow, then this fellow is not the voice of God. Because when this fellow speaks, it sounds like thunder. When God speaks, it sounds like a command. Hey, let's not write that part. Keep reading. Let's just clarify. Heard the seven thunders, and I was about to write. I mean, it's like John is dictating after the fact. I was, I was taking all these notes down. I was, doing, I was doing all the work, and I was just about to write this part that I haven't written yet. You, have, you don't know what I was about to write. I saw and heard something, and I was about to tell you what I, what I heard. I was about to write it down for you, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Hope, sealed up, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. In other words, this guy's voice, which booms like seven thunders, he said something, seal it up and write it not, the King James says. Put a button on that. Stamp it is what it means literally. Seal it up. In other words, make it so that it can't be opened. Make it so that it can't be unlocked. You're reading a book. You're reading the book of Revelation. The whole reason this book is called Revelation is because it's a thing previously unrevealed, revealed. You are reading a closed book made open. Things that you should not be privy to that you could not know, God is allowing you to know. He's giving you an inside sneak peek into the eternal battle, not even eternal, into the long battle between God and the devil and of His ultimate prevailing over the devil. You are reading a mystery revealed. Revelation. An apocalypse, a revealing open of something which was previously hidden. Now here's a sliver of that that God says, hold on, keep that part still unrevealed don't write that part which sets off all kinds of flags and makes you wonder well what is it what is it why 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 even tell me that he spoke just to tell me that john heard it was about to write it and then was told not to write it why do that why frustrate me like that well you're going to get the answer of why in just a minute but keep going verse five And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, that's this guy, he lifted up his hand to heaven. And he's about to say something. Now watch me, I'm going to visualize what this is meaning here. Okay? Because lifting up his hand to heaven doesn't mean this. He's not reaching out for something. It doesn't mean seek Heil. When he lifts up his hand to heaven, it looks like this. Now what does this look like? If you're in a court of law, what does it look like? You're about to take an oath. And an old preacher mentor, he's dead now, died a few years back, 
who was very old school. And whenever he was about to baptize somebody, and he was going to have them um, give the great confession, he, well, he, he treated, I think rightly so, like they're going to make an oath. They're going to proclaim, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They're going to state that as, an, as a truth. Uh, and so what he would do is he would, as he would administer it, if you will, for lack of a better phrase, he would raise his hand like this because he was such an old school person. And he would have them raise their hand like this. Instead of saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, they would say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is the, the universal symbol for, I'm taking an oath now. Now here is this angelic messenger speaking and acting with the authority of God behind him. And he raises up his hand as if to take an oath and says, or John describes him in verse 6, as swearing by him that lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things that therein are. Incidentally, his head's up in heaven, his feet are on the sea and the earth, and that there should be time no longer. The actual oath itself is just the very end of that verse. But let's build up to it. The angel takes an oath. Against what? Like You remember, Jesus specifically tells you, you're not supposed to take oaths. Why? Well, if you're amongst friends and you want to convince them of something and you're not a trustworthy person, you have to take an oath. If you were trustworthy, you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to say, I swear, right? You, they would just know your word is true. But we play this game with each other where we say, you know that I'm a liar, but I'll say magic words, I swear, and suddenly you'll believe me. And why anybody falls for that, I don't know, because if they're a liar, they would just lie about swearing, but that's just the game we play. And so imagine if we're amongst friends, and I take an oath, and I say, well, I swear on this anthill. Well, nobody cares about an anthill. Look, kick the anthill over. Anthill doesn't matter. An anthill is smaller than me. Me taking an oath on an anthill is irrelevant. You must, for an oath to be effective, take an oath on something that is greater than yourself, or at least equal to yourself, which is why people say, I swear on the lives of my children, or I swear on my mother's grave, even if she's alive, because they're a liar, or I swear on my own life, on things equal or greater in value to you, right? Thus Jesus says, hold on, you can't take oaths. You're going to swear on your life? I gave you that life. It's not yours to swear against. You're going to swear on the earth? I made the earth. You're going to swear on the temple, Jew? That's my house. You're going to swear on heaven? That's my domain. You're going to swear to me? No, you don't have the power to swear to me. So take no oaths. Just let your yeas be yea and your nay be nay. Just be truthful. And you won't have to say magic words to get people to believe you. The point of it is, though, Jesus understood, because he's God, of course he did, that when you take an oath, you must swear by something greater. Well, remember what Paul says, in Hebrews, presumably Paul, chapter 6, when God could swear by nothing greater, He swore by Himself. When God needed to take an oath to convince us who, who don't know Him, who can't see His eyes, who can't read His body language, how do I know God's telling the truth that He will ultimately save humanity? He said to us, He did something He didn't have to do. He took an oath. And He said, I swear. Well, upon what, God, do you swear? I swear upon Myself, God says. In other words, if I don't keep my promise, I cease to be God. He puts that down as his collateral. That's a powerful statement. Here is an oath taken by a messenger of God. And what does this angel swear by? Him that lives forever and ever. He puts the eternality of God down as collateral. Who created heaven and everything therein. And earth and sea and everything therein. That's the oath. 
And what is the oath? That's what the oath is sworn by. But what is the actual oath itself? That there should be, the King James says, time no longer. Which, you know, maybe if you hear it that way, maybe it makes goosebumps on your neck. Oh, this is the end of time, the end of time. I don't think that's what he's saying. In the whole context of everything that we're looking at in these handful of chapters in Revelation, we're specifically talking about the fall of the Roman Empire. We're specifically talking about God being stirred to action to save the martyrs or to avenge the martyrs that we read in chapter 6 who are under the altar, who are crying to God, how long, how long, how long until you avenge us against that evil people who killed us for no righteous reason. We're innocent, they're guilty. How long until justice is done? And God has said over and over, be patient, be patient. You have your white robes. Be patient, be patient. I'll take care of it all. And then right after that, God starts to stir. That's how Revelation describes it. He's about to act. He's about to act. He's about to act. But still, you wonder, well, when, when, when? How long, how long? And God says, I swear, it will not be very long. And you can take that to the bank, or he is not God, that your enemy will be avenged very soon. Now, how God defines very soon may not be how you define very soon, but that's your problem, not his. The point is, he's taken an oath, and he said, time is running out. Time shall be no more. Very soon, time's up for Rome. Verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets. Hold on. Because you might read this and you might think, oh, did the seventh angel just sound? Did we miss that? No. The seventh angel will sound in chapter 11, the next chapter. What John is doing here is after the fact, because John's already experienced all this and he's writing it down for us. He's saying, listen reader, when the seventh angel does sound in chapter 11, when he begins to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. The thing which was unrevealed will be revealed. Do you remember a few verses ago when John was about to write something and God said, oh, don't write that part. Keep that part a mystery. Until when? Why? What? Why? Huh? When the seventh angel sounds, that last little part will be revealed. The mystery of God will be completed as he has declared to his servants, the prophets. What are the servants, the prophets? Those are the people who speak the word of God. Those are the people who go out and proclaim the message of God, which in this context is God wins, Satan loses. We're on the team that wins and you're on the team that dies. Verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spoken to me again. So that's not this angel. That's the voice of God above. Hold on, wait, someone might say. I thought we're in heaven. Why are we hearing voices from heaven if we're in heaven? Chapter 4 says he's called up to the throne of God. Isn't the throne of God in heaven? Ah, it's Revelation. It's apocalyptic. It's metaphor. It's a play. You're watching a play. You're sitting in the stands. And you're just, the curtains are drawn back. And you're here. And then the curtains pull. And they go back. And then there's a different scene. So don't take these phrases and these terms so literally. It's all about conveying an impression. I hear a voice of God. I hear a voice from heaven. Speak to me, John. Speak to John and say, Go, John, and take the little book which is in the hand of the angel who stands upon the sea and upon the earth. This is basically the first time John is being asked to be a participant in the play. Chapter 7, John is observing and an elder comes up to him and says, Hey, who are these people in white robes? 
And John now has to answer the pop quiz. But he's still detached. He's separated. He's in, the, he's in the stands. He's in the audience. And someone just threw a pop quiz at him while he's in the stands. But now, God says, I need you to get up on the stage and participate. It is now your turn to be an actor in this play. We've had all these crazy things, and now you're going to have a part to play. So go up to this monstrously large creature. This angel who's standing on one foot of the ocean and one foot on the land who is swirling with clouds and his head is radiating and his rainbow is bursting from his temples. And you walk up to him and you say, give me that little book in your hand. Go get him, kid. Your turn now. So John says, verse 9, And I went to the angel and I said to him, Hey, can I have that little book? And the angel said to me, Pause. When this dude speaks, it sounds like thunders. And I can only assume that John was really far away. I'm going to get out of the camera shot. That John was really far away because God had to tell him to go over to that guy. So he was originally really far away and heard a voice that was so monstrous that he could only describe it as thunder everywhere. And now he has to walk up to the guy and the guy's going to look down on him and say, okay, and he's going to hear this thunder Beaming, booming in his, voice, in his face, okay? So just make yourself John and try to visualize that. He goes up to him and he says, give me that little book. Didn't even say please. And the angel says to him, <laughs> the angel says to him a perfectly ordinary thing to say when someone asks for the thing you're reading. Here, but you have to eat all of it. Is, is, that, is that what your Bible says? Perfectly normal. You ask for a donut, they say make sure you read it. Yes, for a book, make sure you eat it. Now, that's not right, but that's what we see here. Here, take it and eat it up. And when you do, it'll make your belly bitter, but it will taste sweet as honey in your mouth. <clears throat> There's an easy explanation, but let's not just lose sight of how bizarre the whole scene is. This dude is holding a book, and he says, here, you can have this little scroll. It hasn't even been read yet, or it hasn't been... Uh, revealed to the world yet. You take it, and I want you, John, to eat it. Every bit of it. Now, if I'm a Roman soldier, and I am screening this letter, as I would be as it's being sent out from the island of exile, I would read this and I would think, well, John has lost his mind. Pass it on. But if I'm a Christian, if I have a detailed knowledge of the Old Testament, Someone being told to eat the word is actually not that remarkable. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Jeremiah says that he was told to eat the word of God. Ezekiel, while in heaven, mind you, Ezekiel 2, verse 8, is told to open his mouth so that the inspired word could be fed to him. So that he could regurgitate it out to the people when he preaches. Eating the Word of God is a metaphor in the Old Testament, transposed here and put in the New, a metaphor for inspiration. Inspiration. Inspira- you know, it doesn't matter. It's not a spelling bee. In spirit shun. Put the inspired Word in you. In spirit shun. Inspiration. Consume this message. You have this unrevealed message. Eat it all up. But now here's the thing about it. This message you're going to consume, that you're going to be inspired by to repeat and preach like a prophet, this message has a good side and a bad side. It's written in my Bible, and I think in yours too, 
bitter than sweet. It's put in those terms, which we use the term bittersweet, and that's fine. But it's, it's backwards in the way it happens, though, because he says it'll be bitter in your belly, but it will be sweet in your mouth. Well, shouldn't it be sweet in my mouth first, and then you know, it goes in like Chick-fil-A, and then it goes out like Taco Bell? Isn't that what you're saying? It starts out sweet, and then it ends up sour. But it's, it's deliberately flipped, and I don't know why. I said all that to tell you I don't know why. Maybe it's just because it sounds better that way. But that's what the angel says. Verse 10. I took the little book out of the angel's hands, and I ate it up. I don't know how he did that. Listen, nobody's literally eating paper here. It's, it's a metaphor. It's a play. Okay, It's like a Charlie Kaufman movie, but it's a play. I ate it up, and it was in my hand, uh, excuse me, in my mouth, sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, digested it, it was bitter in my belly. And then he, the angel, says to me, you must prophesy again before many people, nations, tongues, and kings. You have eaten something which hitherto had not been revealed. Now you have consumed it. Now it's yours. You're inspired by it. Go repeat it. Regurgitate it out. But this message you're going to preach, John, is bittersweet. It's both good and bad. It has both components to it. Listen, this whole thing, I know I said it before. I'm almost done. It's uh, bizarre and it's weird and strange, but it is very much in keeping with the things that God asked of his prophets, which in this moment right now, John is fulfilling the role of a prophet. He's going to deliver the message of God, which is all the prophet did. Sometimes they told the future. 90% of the time they told the present, you are all a bunch of sinners and you will be destroyed. This little tag at the end. So he's doing the work of a prophet. And more often than not, God told his prophets to do these bizarre things to catch the attention of the people. For example, Ezekiel was told to lie on his side for 390 days in order to symbolize all the years that Israel had sinned against God, Ezekiel 4, verses 1-5. through Hosea was told to name his children. To name his children, this child will be called no mercy, and this child will be called judgment is coming, in order to express to the nation how God was about to punish them. Hosea 4, excuse me, 1, verses 4-6. through Isaiah wandered up and down the streets of Jerusalem at best in his underwear. And depending on the rabbi you speak to, not even that in order to warn, catch the attention, and then warn the people of Judah that Egypt was not a reliable ally. That was the only message. It wasn't even the big picture. It was just a sliver of the message. He had to walk around in the buck just to say, don't trust that one guy. Isaiah 20, verses 2-4. through That's how committed God expects His prophets to be to the message. Now, I'm not going to do that, but that's how committed they had to be. Okay? So I'm not saying eating a scroll is ordinary. I'm just saying it's, there's at least a precedent behind God telling his prophets to do this bizarre thing to make someone just stop and stare at it, read it three times, and then say, yep, that's what it says. That's what he has to do. Because then you dwell, dig into it, and you dwell deeper into it, and you realize, what is the point here? Here's a message that is bitter and sweet. And what is the bittersweet message? It is a message of victory. That's sweet. But... Rome, who is being defeated for you to get your victory, church, as he's writing here to these people, Rome is not just going to lay down. Rome is going to swing on their way down. And they're going to take as many Christians as they can. Incidentally, that's also the modus operandi of the devil. Yes, the devil has already lost the war, but he is fighting a battle for every single soul on his way to his final day of being put down. So he will take as many of you as he can, as many of us as he can with him. And if he takes any of us, that's bitter even if the final victory is sweet. So it's a sweet message, victory in Jesus. 
The bitter part is, between now and then, there's a lot of loss of life and souls lost along the way. All right. I'm going to end on that, on that note. I do have, I, I, that's the end of Revelation for the study. I do have one last thing I want to say. I, I saw this quote and I wanted to use it because it just seemed very appropriate to the book. This is a quote from President Calvin Coolidge, so 100 years ago, more. Uh, and he says, quote, Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not, because nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full, full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. That last line again, press on, has solved all of the problems of the human race. I would take issue with that. Jesus has solved those problems, but I see what he means. His point is, you get a lot of places just with grit. You can get a lot of places, you can get through a lot of struggles just with determination and, as he says, persistence. That is the message of the book of Revelation. You have already been given victory. You've already been declared the winner. All you have to do is get from here to the checkered flag down there. It's just the floor is lava between here and there. And so you've got to run. And it's hard. And it hurts. And a lot of people will fall back. Nobody ever said, well, no one in the Bible ever said, Christianity is supposed to be easy. Liars say that. Joel Olstein will say that every other Sunday. Well, he's a liar. I don't care how shiny his teeth are. Jesus never said Christianity is easy or that I'll make it easy. He says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christianity is hard. Christianity is worth it, is the point. It's harder to be lost in terms of the ultimate sacrifice that you'll pay with your soul. So that's, that's the message that I have for you. That's all I have in terms of Revelation. Next week, we will start chapter 11, which even though we have one angel left to sound, really starts the second half of the book. And you'll see that in detail um, as we go through it. Any comments or questions from anything that was said? All right. I hope you all have a Merry Christmas, uh, if that's your bag, and a Happy New Year, but I'll see you before then anyway. Um, this Sunday I'm preaching the last sermon of the year, and I'll just tell you this, the theme all year long has been Jesus 2020, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. The sermon is simply going to ask us, have we seen Jesus. And so that's the sermon for Sunday. But again, hope you all have a Merry